This is episode number 37 with Dr. John Donlosky, a professor of psychology at Kent State University who has contributed empirical and theoretical work on memory and metacognition, including theories of self-regulated learning and metacomprehension. Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high performance strategies in school, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. Each week, we bring you an expert who's risen to the top in their industry with specific strategies that you can implement immediately to take your results to the next level. I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. John Donlosky. John's research has focused on understanding three interrelated components of self-regulated learning that we really dove deep into on the podcast. First, the monitoring of learning. Second, the control of study time. And third, the application of strategies during learning. These three components of learning fall under the rubric of metacognition, which is about people's cognition or the mental processes like thinking, knowing, remembering, judging, and problem solving, all involved in gaining knowledge and comprehension. By studying metacognition in students across the lifespan, a major goal of his research involves developing techniques to improve student learning and achievements. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for taking the time away from your important work to be here to share your thoughts for improving student learning. My pleasure. Well, let's dive right into the questions. John, I first heard you, it was back in 2016 on an EdWeek webinar. And you were speaking about deliberate practice being one of the most effective strategies versus cramming. And we all know, we've all been a student and we've all crammed. And I actually wrote that quote down and it's been in every presentation I've done for the K-12 school market ever since. And then I recently watched your presentation that was from way back from the McMaster Symposium on Cognition, Learning and Education where you went deeper into your research. Can you give an overview of what launched your research with learning strategies? And do you think we can learn anything with enough deliberate practice over time? Yeah, actually, my journey into wanting to understand uh, strategies and how to improve student achievement began when I was a graduate student. And I was focused mainly on trying to understand why students are so overconfident in their knowledge. That is, when they try to monitor the learning, why do they often believe they understand or will remember something when they don't understand and don't remember? And we are developing a variety of scaffolds to help students more accurately assess their own knowledge. And as we were making little successes and realizing what students should do to really be able to accurately evaluate themselves, I realized, well, when students finally figure out what they don't understand or what they haven't learned well, well, they're going to need tools to correct those errors. That is, they're going to need strategies to learn that content or understand it. And that's when I became vitally interested in, well, once a student figures out that they don't understand, what do they do next to really get the biggest bang out of the buck for the time they use in learning, to really make big gains? And yeah, I do think anyone can learn anything uh, with the right kind of practice and using the right amount of time. Now, it's not that everyone can be the best at something, right? There are limits to human performance. And so when I was younger, I played a lot of basketball. I had really good strategies. I did a lot of deliberate practice and I got really good at it. But I had a variety of physical limitations that, you know, held me back. I, right now I'm jumping as high as I can jump, right? 
right. not going to be a professional basketball player. But I learned a great deal and I got a lot better. And, you know, that happens with academia too. There's some subjects that people excel at more. And you can learn anything you want. But are we all going to, you know, grow up to be Albert Einstein? Probably not, right? It's a little combination of your background knowledge, your abilities, and really using the right kinds of deliberate practice to, to hit the highest levels of achievement. Well, that, that makes complete sense. And, you know, when I'm working with students in the classroom, they all want to turn pro and, and you don't want to burst their bubble, but that's just, you know, their thought, what, what do you want to do? And they're like, I'm going to be pro this. <laughs> so it's just trying to keep the balance of, you know, we'll keep practicing because I do, I have heard of some people that practiced every day and they beat the odds. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, if in college I had grown another six inches and got a little uh, bounce in my step, uh, that along with all that hard work I put in, you know, might have actualized in something. So definitely would never want to hold anyone back. You should go after your dreams and your you know, glory, uh, what you really want to excel in. But, uh, you know, some of those dreams might just be dreams. Better to have some alternatives in mind, too. Absolutely. Well, when you were doing your research, can you kind of take us back a little bit to um, John Hattie's research and where it all started, um, where you actually started to pick out which learning strategies you're going to figure out the best, um, how you came up with your list and what surprised you the most and what did other people think about what you came up with? Yeah, I, this was, I think you're referring to a monograph that I wrote uh, with a variety of really excellent collaborators about seven years ago. And we were just charged with a simple task, go and evaluate the, the current strategies that students use. And the difficulty of that task is there's so many strategies that have been researched in the field and that folks have been trying to understand do they work. So we really didn't know where to begin. We, had, we couldn't evaluate the quality of all strategies. So our first big task is just choose which ones we're going to review and evaluate. And that was a tough task to do. And how we narrowed it down was pretty straightforward. First, we only evaluated strategies that were cost-free. We wanted to be inclusive. So there are lots of good auto-tutors out there that we know can really help students, but they're very expensive. Not all, they would, they're not inclusive. Not all students could get access to these. Um, and then we wanted to evaluate some of the strategies that we thought students used a lot, like highlighting and students often go back and reread their notes and so forth. And we wanted to know how effective those strategies were. And admittedly, we put a couple strategies on there that we were sure worked well, but we wanted to review all of the evidence for those. So that's kind of how we came up with a, a relatively short list of strategies to evaluate. And as far as surprising with respect to the research, at least in my own mind, what really blew me away is a technique that we all use a lot, rereading, really isn't always that effective. And I just wanna let me highlight one study that, that was really uh, impressive in this mind. Simply had students read some relatively difficult text materials and students either read it initially or came back and reread it a second time. Okay, what students would normally do, say with their notes or something. And in this particular study, the students who came back and reread it Again, that is, they had twice as much experience with that material, gained absolutely nothing with respect to the retention of the material or their knowledge of it, right? So at least in this one particular experiment, rereading was absolutely inert, you know, complete wow. waste of time. And you could imagine why when you go back and reread something, you're familiar with it already, it kind of eyes move across the page, but your mind wandering because you think you already know it. So students really need to use techniques that are 
really more engaging than simply rereading their materials, kind of get their minds into it so they really gain from the time they use when they're studying. Absolutely. And when you were looking at the strategies that scored the highest, so um, I know you were talking about distributed practice or spacing study sessions over time versus cramming and retrieval practice, like uh, multiple choice or filling in the blanks or essay questions. Did you actually see that these methods are being used more by students now? Like, what have you seen with the application of your research? Because I'm a highlighter and highlighter and then I definitely take the notes and put them in my phone and reread them but it's made me think a little bit differently you know maybe I need to be reading my notes over a spaced amount of time to, to really have the information sink in so yeah. what have you noticed well first don't throw away your highlighter we all all use highlighters I mean it's the beginning of the journey figuring out what you need to learn that is a great question I wish I had an empirical answer to it right you'd hope not only myself, there are a lot of folks doing great research on these techniques, especially, as you mentioned, retrieval practice and space practice. And we all hope that the messages that we have about how effective these techniques are making it out there to teachers and to students. Anecdotally, I know that at least some campuses I visit, there is awareness and that at least more teachers appear to be adopting, say, uh, testing techniques in the classroom, like low stakes quizzes and so forth, right. either the beginning or end of a class. However, I suspect it's having, uh, you know, a smaller impact than we'd like, right? I mean, it takes a long time for research to trickle out into the greater public to have an impact. So I'm hoping that like through podcasts like this and so forth, we get the good word out and, and more people start to use these techniques, both the teachers in the classroom, but also students as they try to regulate their learning on their own. And I mean, it, one anecdote I can give you where I know change has happened in my own classroom. When I first started this research, because I, I, I teach every semester, I wasn't testing students in the class. I wasn't giving low stakes quizzes and so forth. And now I do so religiously and I absolutely love it. And I think the students love it because one or two low stakes quizzes a day can really be useful to the students in their learning, as you know, if, if the students get it right, uh, they learn a great deal, it improves their retention for that information. If they get it wrong, they know what they need to learn. But how I've been using it, and I think quite effectively, is when they can't answer a question that I pose, I, I ask them to go back and look at their notes. Can they find the answer in their notes? And it's really helped me to do a little uh, teaching about good note taking, because often, I know I went over a very important point in the class the last day. They can't answer that question from their notes that I'm quizzing them on. And that's a sign that they're not taking good notes. And that I, either I, as a teacher, have to signal more like this is important or a little bit more training on getting the real content. So at least I'm using the techniques uh, in my classroom. And I think more teachers are, are uh, embracing them. But I, I'd like to know. I think, I, I think we should do a research project together to find out. This that really would be wonderful. Impact. I'd love that. I, I know that in my, my um, children, they're 10 and 8, they definitely do a lot of retesting before a test. That's, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, I, at least when I talk with students, most students don't realize that testing, when you get something right, it helps your retention. But they do know that it helps them evaluate whether they're ready for that test. And at least for some of them, I think it decreases their anxiety. You know, they're kind of right. simulating that test that's coming up. Right. Kind of getting used to it. So when they finally are in that high stakes exam, there's a little bit less anxiety.
Absolutely. a little bit more feeling that you can get it done. Yep, that's a whole other thing that's happening these days with anxiety in our schools. So anything to reduce that um, is good. Yeah. yeah. So what happens next after you've got these learning strategies and a student uses them? What is successive relearning that I've heard you talk about? Okay, successive relearning is pretty straightforward and it's just a combination of distributed practice with retrieval practice. But here it's retrieval practice used in the right way. And the best way to explain it is kind of appeal to flashcards. And simply that, you know, you test yourself on content. It could be very complex. And if you get it right, you put the flashcard aside. But if you get it wrong, you put the flashcard at the end of your stack. Right? And then you go and you test yourself again. And if you don't get it right, you restudy the information, you put it at the end. You keep doing this until you correctly recall or answer all your test questions correctly. So that's one session. What makes it successive relearning is that after you've done the one session, you come back several days later and you go over that same, say, stack of flashcards one more time. And then you relearn it because you'll naturally forget that content in the interim, at least some of it. And the more students come back to relearn it, the better their long-term retention is. So successive relearning is just the combination of those two really effective techniques. And it really provides a powerful tool for students and teachers to use to learn content uh, in a very durable manner. And one thing I'd like to note about successive relearning that's important is that anything that your children are good at, they're using successive relearning to get good at it. So whether they play, uh, I know a lot of uh, children love to dance, they love sports, they're good at soccer, many are good at video games, right? The first person action shooters. And you start asking students uh, and children how they get good at those things. And they will describe successive relearning to you. They won't call it that, they won't understand that that's what they're doing, but that's exactly what they're doing. And all we want students to realize if they use those same kind of strategies that help them get really proficient at soccer, to get proficient in school, they can really excel in their schooling as well. So that's what successive learning is. And, and we know how to do it in sports. It's just, right. why doesn't it translate into the classroom? Well, sometimes studying physics isn't quite as exciting as maybe kicking a soccer ball around, but uh, I, not for me, I love physics, so and I really didn't care for soccer. But uh, it turns out that it, it's good to, feel like you're making progress, right? And to wow. understand like that's exciting. You can see that in sports. You can see it much more easily in other domains. And sometimes the first struggles you have when you're learning really difficult educational content, it's kind of demoralizing, right? Because you're struggling and you're not seeing the progress. So you really have to stick with it to get those first advances, to get that excitement where you feel like, well, I can't wait to get back to it because I'm really making progress. I can do this. I can understand it. So. At least that's my own spin on why it's not quite as fun, say, as playing soccer. Whatever. Well, that makes sense. It yeah. totally makes sense. Well, it caught my attention that a major aim of your research is to develop techniques to improve effectiveness of people's self-regulated learning. And mm -hmm. self-regulation is actually always one of the most requested topics that I get if I'm working with a school. They say this is what we want, especially for middle and high school students. Mm -hmm. And um, even for adults, you know, we are starting the year and we have these goals and they all fall off by the end of January. So why did you choose self-regulation opposed to let's say something like growth mindset? And 
you know, what are you doing with this now? Are you doing anything with it with your metacognition and education lab? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it wasn't either or like mindset or self-regulation. And I, I'm sure most of the uh, viewers of your podcast know what mindset is. And it, think about mindset or the belief that you can do something, right? As kind of necessary, but not sufficient for really high levels of student achievement. Mindset is almost like the, the gas that goes in the tank. But, you know, if the machinery doesn't run well at all, the gas isn't going to do much. So I'd like to give students a good mindset that you can get it done. But not only do they need that good mindset, they have to have the tools in order to get things done well. So imagine really convincing a, a young student that they can excel at math, but then not teaching them all the strategies they need to actually understand the math. It would be demoralizing. It's like, I can do it, but then every time you try, you fail. Mm -hmm. And so what I got really interested in self-regulation is to help students, well, you've got, you're motivated. Now I'm gonna give you the tools that you need to regulate your learning in a way to really achieve high levels of performance. And so, at least in my mind, it's like developing a toolbox for students to use so that they can become independent learners. And the reason it's so important for high school students is that as they move from right kindergarten to the early grades, to high school, to college, they have more material to learn, right? And they have more responsibility to learn it on their own. So self-regulation becomes vitally important. And unfortunately, many of the students that we even get in college don't have the basic skills to effectively regulate their own learning. Mm -hmm. So some of the topics I'm really interested in now, some of which I'm doing research on, some of I'm not, are time management skills. I mean, if we can give students the ability to manage their time in a way that's um, based on the goals that they set and on the plans they do to achieve them, I think we'll really be developing good self-regulated learners, basically students that can take advantage of many of the strategies we're teaching them. So for instance, take successive relearning. Students have to learn content on one day and then come back several days to relearn it. Well, without good time management skills, understanding how right, to use a calendar, yeah. to right, schedule in all of these learning sessions, the students are not gonna use these strategies, right? So learning how to motivate them to manage their time, I think is an important avenue for future research and just future attempts for parents to not necessarily schedule all the things for your children, but also teach them on how to schedule themselves and right, how to handle uh, the backlash when in fact they miss something, right, on their schedule and how to yeah. do it better. So to teach them these basic skills. Right, so when the excitement here is that I know that I've forgotten 90% of what I learned as a college student, but what I left with was the ability to learn new information and to excel at new things. So in high school and college, yeah, you learn a lot of content, but you should also be learning how to learn so that you can be a lifelong learner, right? And yeah. if we can give students those kinds of skills, we've equipped them to do anything they want, where they don't need a teacher in a classroom to learn something, they can go do it on their own. So that's what excites me about yeah, self-regulated learning. Me as well, because that translates into the workplace. We're preparing them for life beyond, where you know, we, can't even, we don't even know what jobs are going to exist in the next 10, 20 years. Absolutely, so to give them a kind of a toolbox, 
-hmm. on how to succeed on in everywhere and on anything I think is a great way to go. And it's something that because of the history of our, our, our educational systems, it's more focused on content, right? And less focused on, well, how do you really deal with that content, learn it, understand it, move forward. Right. And that just kind of ties in my question here on metacognition. So I was looking at your book and, and is it, is it correct that it's the first textbook to be written on metacognition? Uh, as far as I know, yeah, I'd like to like, yeah, you go. Uh, I hope it's not the last one. I mean, certainly I wouldn't mind writing a, a second edition of that and seeing other folks contribute as well. Oh, absolutely, because there's so much to it. And especially I enjoyed the beginning part of, you know, the history of metacognition. Why is it so important for the learning process for us to all understand what it is and how to use it? Well, I think to kind of go back to a comment you made earlier about John Hattie's work. John Hattie has done quite a bit of research um, and investigation showing that formative evaluation is so important for students' achievement. That is, basically as a teacher, figuring out what each student understands and doesn't understand so that you can focus your teaching on the content that don't understand. Why metacognition, I think, is so important because a component of it really is formative evaluation. The degree to which students can figure out on their own what they don't know. So uh, that's why I think it's uh, very important and vital. So mindset, uh, grit is another component to this. This all really is based on uh, Albert Bandura's uh, self-efficacy theory, where the vital ingredient is the belief you could do a task, and that belief you could do it helps you to persist in the face of struggling, right? And note, if you're not struggling, you're probably not embracing a learning challenge worth going after, right? Uh, right. Any f- quick fix, like I can help you learn without struggling, is magic and it's not gonna work, right? right? Learning is tough. So that mindset, right, gives you the motivation that you can do it. The other aspects about teaching students how to monitor the best strategies, after you have that good mindset, it kind of tells them, well, when you're motivated, use these techniques and you will excel. Right, so it's a combination of all these things that students need in their toolbox to really think, become an effective, independent self-regulator of their own learning. And then helping them to reach those aha moments when they, you know, the learning had escaped them. They couldn't see the answer in math. They used right. a different strategy. Maybe they turned off the radio. They put their phone away, and suddenly, bam, they get it. And then they've reached that aha moment and that's just the power of it all. Absolutely. And I think at least in the quite a bit of the old research on self-efficacy showing one of the best ways to promote, I can do it attitude is to have people actually succeed at doing it. So start off with a relatively easy version of the task that shows them they can be successful and gradually get more and more difficult. Again, exactly like you do in sports, right? But now we just need the counterpart in education because the aha moment is absolutely essential. Kind of just like, it's exciting. It's like, I can do it. In fact, using successive relearning in our lab research, we have students come in and learn very, very difficult, complex definitions. And it's the first time ever in my career where I've had students in experiments come up to us and just be really... Again, a aghast, that aha moment. It's like, I can't believe 
how much I can learn if I can only do it in this right way. Right. So they're really blown away about how well these techniques work, so much so that they're asking, can my friends get be part of this experiment, which I've never heard before, like asking whether, you know, they can get more people part of, part of this lab research. So it, it's fulfilling for us because it's like we're seeing students have those aha moments. They don't come cheap, though. It takes time. It takes mm -hmm. effort, using the right strategies, having the right mindset. Absolutely. It's so powerful. Well, John, is there anything that's important that you've uncovered to help improve student learning that we might have just missed today, just to wrap it all up? Well, we hit on lots of different things. I think, you know, I, I think we've covered the most important things. Let me emphasize, time management is critical. I mean, the more I work with students at the college level, if I could teach them one thing, despite all these strategies I've been investigated over the past 20 years if I could really help them embrace the importance of goal setting planning and time management I think we make big inroads to developing a stronger student who's going to achieve well beyond school so I'm with you on that well thank you so much John for taking your time to be here today to share your knowledge your research on these evidence-based learning strategies if someone wants to learn more about your work, is the best place through Kent State's website? I couldn't find you on social media anymore. Yeah, I'm kind of old, so I don't really <laughs> use social media. Anyone's always welcome to write me my email address, and I'll share materials with anyone. But yeah, coming checking out the website on Kent State is great as well. It's largely okay. Perfect. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes as well with your full study from the Sage Journal. So, Thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.